If you record audio for any purpose, chances are you want it to be heard. You want to attract the largest audience possible who can hear your message. That's where we come in. We're CyberEars.com, a revolutionary Internet service that will host your audio files and help you promote and track its popularity. Considering hosting a podcast to the world, we have all the automated tools to make the process as simple and easy as it can be. No technical mumbo-jumbo to work out. CyberEars.com does all the work for you. You record it, we take care of the rest. So don't delay. Go to CyberEars.com today and register for a free trial account. Upload your audio files and get heard. With CyberEars.com, it's your audio on your terms. Paratopia, it is time, it is time, it is time. Three times the time here on Paratopia. Uh, Jeff, I'm trying to sell something. What am I doing? I don't know. Do you have a car you're getting rid of? (laughs) I don't know. Uh, Tonight's guest, of course, is the one, the only, Whitley Strieber, back again to talk about his book, The Key, A True Encounter. Um, He had privately published this a number of years ago, I think in 2000 or maybe 2001, I think 2000. But he has finally released it for mass consumption through Tarcher Penguin. Um, He's got a website for it, which is www.motkbook.com. I guess not to be confused with NKOTB. (laughs) New Kids on the Block. I'm sorry. Now now you've done it. Now you've confused (laughs) them. I'll take that out. Sorry, Whitley. MOTKbook.com, and we're going to be talking all about the key. We're going to be delving into some other tangential issues, but mainly the key. So for those who have read it, you're in for a treat. And I think for those who haven't read it, you're in for a a treat. So two times the treat, three times the time here on Paratopia. Also, three times the host, because with us is one Mr. Lee Townsend, not yet a doctor. Is that correct? No, not quite yet. I'm, I just play one on TV. <laughs> Leave. Don't be shy. Talk into your microphone. Oh, I beg your pardon. Well, see, I have to work up to getting a microphone. Um, no, I, I just play a doctor on TV. How are you? How, how goes it with you? I am lovely. Thank you. And this is, this is going to be a show not to miss, that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah, we know that because we taped it already. That's right. <laughs> that's how we know. So, Lee, what did you think? <laughs> <laughs> Well, wow. it's a time slip. We're experiencing <laughs> right. a time slip on Paratopia while Lee and I are drinking some of my wife's lovely sweet tea. Ah, that is that sounds sweet. <laughs> How would you, Jeff, categorize this in terms of uh, the other uh, two interviews that we've done with Whitley? I mean, where, how do you think this compares? I would certainly say it's probably the best out of the three. Really? Um, wow. Yeah. I would say yes. Um, I, I, think I would the say second, they're all awesome in their own ways. Huh? Well, let's be honest. The first one, I don't think Whitley was in the best of uh, mood and um, 
Uh, and you I, guys I, were new yeah. in your relationship. Well, that's too, uh, you know? well, you know, it's uh, actually Jeremy had already done a book opening for him on all sorts of things. Well, you know, but <laughs> you know, it's. Uh, uh, I, I think the second one was was a great, you know, kind of impromptu chat. But this one, I think, being structured about the book, about this experience, and about all the deeper issues that come out of it, I think to me just makes it a really a really great one uh, for for me. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. <laughs> yes, yes, so. it is not to be missed, and neither is our after chat. Yeah, except for our after chat, that is to be missed. But the interview itself, right. no, no, I'm kidding. Uh, and I'll play to dead air. I don't care. I'll tell jokes and nobody has to laugh. That's fine. Okay, great. All right. So do we have anything that we need to cover before we get going with the interview? No, I say we dive in. All right, Lee. Yeah, let's roll. All right. In three, two, one. Here comes Willie Streber. Peritopia, without further ado... You know him, you love him. Here he is once again, Whitley Strieber, in the conversation I've been wanting to have since about the year 2000. Uh, the Key. Whitley, thank you very much for coming on and talking to us about your re-released book, The Key. Well, thank you very much for having me. If anyone doesn't know, would you like to do the setup for this, how this happened? You're in a hotel room. Yeah, sure. Of All course. That, yeah. Uh, I was. It was the last night of an author tour for my book, Confirmation. I was in Toronto. I was asleep in a hotel room, getting ready to go back to Texas the next morning. And uh, there came a knock at the door, and I assumed it was the room service waiter because I'd had my food inside the room, and the room service had not come to take away the tray. And I opened the door, and a man came in and just started talking. And I initially tried to throw him out because... uh, you know, it, obviously, it's, it was late, and I certainly didn't want anyone I didn't know in there. In generally, one assumes that any kind of a meeting like that after midnight is going to be bad news. But he said some things that I thought were incredibly interesting. And uh, he hooked me, and I started listening, and then I started taking notes. Well, what's interesting about the notes is, right, so the, the notes that you took, you looked at the next day, and they were basically what, just sort of gibberish or, or half-formed no, pieces they of information? No, they were little uh, sort of, not doodles, but just little statements. But what was so interesting about I found them very mnemonic. They were very helpful to me. Uh, they worked very well. When it came time to transcribe the conversation, I found that just by... Looking at them, I could really, they really helped me. They, they, I don't know quite, I've never done it quite that way before or since. I wouldn't say there was anything particularly unusual about them, but I was just, I I used a mnemonic system rather than uh, taking, say, shorthand notes or some other kind of notes, and it just happened to work very well. Right. Uh, Well, when you go to remember the conversation, does it come back easily for you? I mean, do you think, how about this? Let's let's make it, this is sort of out there as an abstract as possible. Do you think that this conversation uh, was meant to be transcribed or do you think that it was meant to have your input and that you were to co-create the conversation? How much of it do you think is you? No, I think it was meant to be transcribed. Hmm. I, I really do. Uh, that was certainly my impression. I, I was never brought up at all during the course of the conversation. 
the idea of what I was supposed to do with it never even entered the dialogue at all. Right. And I never thought about it at the time. I was just very, you know, very interested in what he was saying. I thought it was quite fascinating. I was trying to remember as he went along what he was saying. Okay. And before we get to the conversation, I just want to talk a little bit about the word imagination, because one of the things that we often hear about experiencers, um, and we've heard about you, is that we can't differentiate between imagination and reality. We're fantasy prone and all of that. But you said something uh, at the end of the book that I think is so dead on that I'm, you know, maybe you'll just say it here for us. Um, if I ask you, why is it that it is so hard to say this happened to me when you know that something like this happened to you? Well, the hard part is for me accepting that something that I would have ex- assumed was impossible had in fact happened. Um, I I really have a lot of trouble with all of that. I I just have a lot of trouble with all of my experiences for that reason. I'm um, I'm not comfortable with my experiences, and I'm not comfortable with any assumptions about them, and I'm very much in conflict because on the one hand, I had in the close encounter experience in 1985, something happened to me so extremely bizarre that it's beyond completely beyond explanation. And the fact that it seemed to happen in physical reality was extremely confusing. But what I, I had to grasp eventually was that I was literally raped and, and it wasn't so easy to, to deal with this, which is why in the book communion, I said simply, oh, I had a rectal probe. And the result was I ended up getting laughed at up and down the creation for being raped, which is something you don't want to have happen to you. It's very, very damaging to your well-being to to be raped and to be humiliated and injured that badly and then just have everybody just choruses of laughter. It was hard. And it was my fault because I just didn't – I couldn't say it. And part of the reason I couldn't say it was that if I said it, then I had to face the element of absolute physicality that is connected with this experience. But it wasn't just a normal rape. I, I, the last time I was treated for it was about six weeks ago. It caused lasting damage. And so it physically happened. What did it and how? Right. Well, I remember very well now, very clearly, and I've even found out the type of instrument that was used. Um, it's called an electrostimulator, and it used to be used in um, helping people uh, have erections who couldn't have them. Uh, but in, and is now something that's still commonly used in animal husbandry to get animals to perform when necessary, you know, bulls and so forth. Uh, uh, so I had to come to face the physical aspects of the experience. And I found that incredibly difficult. And I still do. It's why in the morning after the experience with the master of the key, I called my wife and I said to her, Anne, this is something very extraordinary happened last night. And I don't want you to ever let me deny it. I'm going to try to deny it. 
and I'm going to try to say nothing happened, but it was just a dream or whatever. I'm going to try to blow it off. I did try to blow it off for two years after I arrived home the next afternoon. For two years. I didn't write a word down. I just had those notes stuck away in a drawer. And I didn't want to deal with it. And I would say to her, she would bring it up every once in a while, because she, she had, I told her a few of the things that he'd said. And she was really interested. And finally she said, Whitley, why don't you actually sit down and just write what you can remember? Because if you wait much longer, you might not remember. And I said, well, I don't remember a thing anyway. But I sat down and I took the notes out anyway. And that was when the, I was very surprised to find I remembered it all quite vividly, quite vividly. And I think that the transcription I did was uh, probably, oh, easily 90% accurate and maybe more. Yes. And isn't there also something about, um, you had said in the book, having high strangeness experiences, psychologically, you want to compartmentalize it into dream material or into imagination, even though you know it's real, because that's the way your brain deals with things that don't jive with, quote unquote, normalcy. I would have definitely blown the first close encounter experience off if I hadn't been hurt. They hurt me on purpose so that I would not blow it off, so that I would come back and I would report it to somebody. And once I told the doctor about it, then that sort of the ball started rolling. I kept, it kept eating at me and eating at me. Then I told a dear friend, Timothy Greenfield Saunders, about it because I wanted to tell Anne and I didn't know, you know, how do you tell your wife you think you got abducted by aliens? It's not so easy. And so I told Timothy the story. This is long after I had exhausted all of the medical uh, possibilities and so forth. And Timothy said, well, just tell her. She's married to you. She's not going to be surprised, really. I don't think you understand what you are. <laughs> so It's interesting you say that because that's something Jeff uh, has said about his own experiences, that he used to get all sorts of marks and he on his body, and he believed that these marks, uh, they weren't surgical or anything like that. They were for him to not be able to deny that this was going on. You know, there's sort of a, a physicality to it. Yeah, there's a physicality to it, but it's very uh, – it's very deceptive because I still wouldn't necessarily say that the whole experience or maybe any of it was an actual physical experience like you and I and the three of us are having now. Yeah. I wouldn't say that. Uh, the fact that it can emerge into the physical world and do physical things to you is another thing, another story entirely. I'm not at all sure we're dealing with something that we understand well enough to make a determination about its fundamental nature. Uh, I, do you think the master of the key is physical? Uh, that's a very interesting question. You know, when I look back on that meeting with him, I wouldn't say that I remember it the same way I remember a normal experience. But the trouble is that could be simply because I've looked at it so hard so many times. He looked normal. He sounded normal. It didn't occur to me until the very end of the conversation that there was anything really unusual going on. And that was when he wanted me to drink a glass of some kind of white stuff. And I did it. And now, you and anyone listening to this, would you really do that? 
The answer is absolutely not. But then the next morning when I woke up, I thought, well, I'm going to take the glass home and get it analyzed because it had it was thick white stuff. And um, and I knew at that time I was working with uh, Bill Mallow of Southwest Research and Bill had every single piece of scientific equipment available to analyze anything. He was a material scientist. That glass was absolutely pristine. It hadn't even been used. It didn't look like it had even been used. So I thought to myself, ah, so it was a dream. Wow. Well, let's get into the material a bit. Uh, I'll, I'll just tell you what, what strikes me is the very first piece of your conversation, of course, is him telling you that uh, the reason that we're stuck to Earth is because the, the parents of the child who was supposed to invent a way off uh, was murdered in the Holocaust. And so as a consequence, we're stuck on Earth. And to me, just just reading that, it's like that's almost a dare <laughs> to read the rest of the book. I mean, that that is right off the bat a make-or-break moment. Are you yeah. going to get through this conversation, or are you going to throw it away and go, this is crap? Did it feel like that to you when you were having the conversation? <laughs> yeah, that's what kept me going, actually. It was one of the most unusual things I'd ever heard anybody say. I, I was surprised by it. I've gotten plenty of trouble about that. You'd be amazed at how many anti-Semites there are out there. People see those words in there and they write me unbelievably hostile emails. One of these real sort of anti-Semitic websites, um, what was it called? Uh, well, I'm, maybe I don't remember. Maybe I do. I'll say it if I remember. Rents, that's it, has a lot of things on it about how the protocols of the elders of Zion, which is a forged document that was reused extensively by the Nazis to justify their killing of the Jews, how it's not forged and it's real and all of this. And someone wrote a thing about the key on this when it came out on this website. And boy, I mean, I got letter after letter after letter from people who just hate Jews. It was frightening. I would, gosh, I can well understand how scared people, Jewish people are. And, you know, they, I have Jewish friends and I just, I, uh, I was appalled. Yeah. can imagine. What about as far as the religious material goes in this book? Have you heard from any religious scholars uh, saying, well, that, that smacks of a truth or no, that can't be? Yes, I have triad, heard. In terms of the triad of the three religions. I've heard of from numerous religious scholars, actually who think of it as being incredibly brilliant, uh, that, that it's a sort of an, almost a breakthrough in terms of religious scholarship. Uh, uh, th they love it. Uh, I, I don't know if s sort of semi-literate believers would, would, but certainly religious scholars find the concept that Buddhism, Christianity, and Islam are all three parts of the same great religious movement fascinating i do too for that matter it never occurred to me see this one of the things about this um about this that, that, that i eventually made me decide to publish it in the first place and now has made me decide to take it into a more public realm is things like that they're so unique there's nothing like that anywhere else in the world mm -hmm. it's only in the key and it has, and yet, when religious scholars read it, they think, "Oh yes, this there's there's great meaning here. This is an extraordinary statement." 
Yeah, well, it, it's interesting on how many fronts that can be said in this book. I mean, the, he sort of takes you on this whirlwind through, you know, computer technology to alleged, you know, aliens to to all of this sort of stuff. I mean, it, did it feel whirlwindy when you were having the conversation? Did you say, whoa, 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 slow down, this is too much to process? Or did you even think that? No, I so didn't think that. I was moving with him very smoothly, but I have regretted how confident I felt since then because I felt like it, I had the feeling that I was with somebody I would see many times. It didn't seem like it would be only a single incident and then gone. It seemed uh, like it would be something that, you know, maybe I'd call him up and we'd go have coffee or have breakfast the next morning or something. Right. And yet, <laughs> when it came, the morning came, I thought, well, I wonder who he is. I realized I have no card. I have no phone number. I have nothing. I spent many years trying to find out something about that man and failed. Well, that was the white liquid. That was breakfast. <laughs> well, there's an interesting thing uh, that white liquid has been present in, present in my life a couple of other times. And as I recall, there is a legend of something that was given to mortals after when they were leaving Olympus, when a mortal would go to Olympus uh, and, and commune with the gods, the experience was so delightful that they were given a, a liquid, a bitter liquid to drink. I believe it might have been called the milk of Nepenthe, so that they would not live once again in the mortal world in an anguish of longing. And I have a certain sense that something like that was involved, it, that there was an effort made to, to help me bear this experience and preserve it, but at the same time, not in the context of the anguish I would probably feel if I really remembered the sense of heaven that was present in that room, but it was present. It was an extraordinary feeling. The man was extremely happy. He was joyous in a way that makes you want to sing, even to remember after all these years. Well, yeah, one of the things you had said is, I feel worshipful toward you. I did. Um, did you get the oh, sense that, so you had the sense that he's God alive. I mean, one of the things that he keeps saying is, I am God, I'm, you know, he, he sort of says all of these various things that you can look at and go, well, is this a trickster, is this a demon? He's saying, well, exactly. He says he's the all. He's, he's alive he says to the God of everything. Says Jesus, he says he's an ordinary person. He implies that he's some kind of an intelligent machine. He says that he's legion. Uh, the the demon legion, he really he really runs the gamut when it comes to that stuff. But then he sort uh, of implies that we all are correct. Well, exactly, and you know, there's a certain sense that what he was really saying is that I'm human, only I know it. Yeah, yeah, that's it. One thing that Jeff and I were talking about the other night is uh, that there are certain pieces of the book that resonate with us, like. Oh, yeah, you knew that, even though we didn't know that. 
Um, and he had asked me, you know, what, what did I feel that and what was it for me? And for me, it was the Zodiac. You know, the fact that the Zodiac wasn't just for farming and what, you know, was actually for them, whoever them they are, you know, the great they. Almost as if the galaxy is a giant clock that is, um, you know, a giant mechanism ticking down to a point at which we either get it, we either um, know that we're human, <laughs> know what that means, um, or we get reset and, uh, you know, die back into the forest, I guess, as he says. I mean, that just strikes me as immediately true. Was Has that been said anywhere else, or was this the first time you had heard that? Mm, I sense that it's been said elsewhere, but I can't call up the exact place. There are certain things that he said that had never been said elsewhere. Uh, most of them were scientific statements. Uh, he Well, the statement about the religions was unique. The statement about the Holocaust was absolutely unique. The statement about there being a form of gas that could retain memory and could be used in intelligent machines was unique. And it turns out to be true. Now, it's just the, one of the things that decided me to write this book, to, to, to publish this book in a broader context, was that I suddenly began to see scientific papers about doing this. And I thought to myself, the book was written in, it, and published in 2002 about an experience that happened in 1998. But the publication, private publication on, on my website in 2002 is absolutely documented. The books weren't, they're not digital, they're hard copies. So there's hundreds of them around. And there's no question about it. The guy said it then. And it was absolutely out of the question at the time. It was a complete nonsense. And even, I, re, I remembered it fairly vividly uh, uh, because... It wasn't something I had to work to recall in any way. And in fact, not much of it was. Um, but it, it, because it was so stupid, it struck me as being sort of like the f- pseudoscience of some 50s uh, science fiction movie, you know. And it turns out to be true. Yeah, I thought that was quite remarkable. Well, uh, the the other sort of big thing that uh, even before this that turned out to be true was the whole global warming scheme that you had then, you know, apparently, right, and correct me if this is wrong, but you were working on a book called The Edge, which was about edge science with Art Bell. uh, We were, yeah. And then this conversation happened and you just put the brakes on that and said, we got to look into uh, the Gulf Stream and all of that. Climate change, yeah. Climate change. And you came up with uh, The Coming Global Superstorm, which became the movie. That's right, which became the day after tomorrow. Now, what happened there was this. I, I realized the importance of what he was saying about climate change, that it could happen very suddenly, and the mechanism of it, that it, it, it starts with winds blowing across the Laurentian Sea, the melting of the polar caps, and all of this stuff. And at the time, as I dug, I found enough of the science was already in place to where it was scientifically very valid. And it always has been when Art and I went on the today show, Matt Lauer laughed at us, not because he, he, because he was frightened by what we said. He, He didn't want to believe it. And he would, he could easily blow us off. We weren't officials and you know, he's pretty much a, he's a very snobbish guy. So uh, you know, he, he didn't have to believe us and he didn't want to because the idea that this could happen so quickly was horrifying. Um, then when the movie came out, there was a great chorus 
of people from the scientific community saying, oh, yes, but it, it could happen, but not that quickly. In the movie, it happened in five days. In the book, it took about a month. And then subsequent to both the book and the movie, there was a paper published about uh, cores that had been taken from the bottom of a very old lake in northern Germany. And they showed conclusively that the transformation from the post-glacial warming trend that happened after the collapse of the of the glacier in the last ice age to the younger dryas which was a snap back into a very very cold climate occurred in 30 days and lasted about 2000 years we cannot survive that as a species the way we are now if that happens again somewhere more than half of this species will starve to death within a year. That is the truth. And that is the naked, hard truth. And there's worse to come. That is that this process is triggered basically by the melting of the poles. My blood ran cold last summer when I saw these happy stories in the press. A yacht has taken a voyage through the Northwest Passage. We're able to ship oil, and it's going to be a lot cheaper to ship it through the Northwest Passage than having to come all the way down through the, through the Panama Canal. And isn't this all marvelous? It's not marvelous. It's a disaster of epic proportions. Then I saw just a few weeks ago that there is an enormous lake of fresh water in the high Arctic Ocean. That type of bolus of water moved down into the mid-Atlantic the last time the Gulf Stream stopped and engineered the whole climate flip amid what must have been extraordinarily chaotic weather. This happens because as the Arctic warms, the tundra melts in the summer. And as the permafrost melts in the summer, it releases methane. The, me the methane is a very potent uh, capturer of heat. And the, the methane captures a lot of heat. Then the next Arctic summer that comes, more heat is captured because there's a lot of methane in the atmosphere. Last September, as the lakes were freezing over in, the northern, in northern Siberia, some Russian scientists went out and they found bubbles under the ice, thin ice layers that had had formed, and they broke those bubbles and found fi found that the gas that was coming out could be lit. It was pure methane. Now, underneath the Arctic Ocean, there are methane hydrates that are frozen at about forty two degrees. They freeze at higher temperature than water. If they let go, if that the temperature of that water gets too high and they let go basically this whole climate shift will happen it will happen and i'm waiting literally watching summer by summer to hear a happy laughing story on cnn or maybe even by matt lauer who knows ha 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 the arctic's turn arctic ocean is turned into seltzer water now you can go up and make yourself a drink Hmm. Yeah. That's they're talking about the end of our world as we know it, but they won't know that. Well, you know, you've often lamented that you're the purveyor of useless knowledge, but of course, what that really means is you're the purveyor of uh, extraordinary knowledge. 
that I'm no good at parties. I can tell you, I'll kill a party flat. Well, <laughs> well I'm just I'm, I'm curious. Uh, in hindsight, looking back on how many times in how many different ways in your life you've had to be the guy who goes out and publicly says what nobody wants to hear, and then somebody else comes along and picks up the ball and and becomes famous for it or whatever becomes common wisdom and everyone goes yeah we knew that i know it's got to hurt at the time and i remember you it hurts hurt all by, the time by matt lauer but well at some point you just go oh i get it that's my role i've got to be that guy <laughs> you know well, it's I, unfortunate it's not, it's, and it hurts but that's who i that's what this is i mean does, does it feel like that to you looking back it, it, well yeah it's very frustrating and it's very frustrating to be like I'm sitting here in this little room in in Los Angeles. I'm never invited to conferences. I'm never uh, I uh, it, people have parties to talk about my work, but not me. I'm not included, and uh, I am too dangerous, too scary, and it is unpleasant. You know, I'm actually a fairly humorous guy. You'd be surprised. But people don't see me that way. Um, uh, I I do th- some things at times at the Esalen Institute. I've, they've picked up on me a little bit, which is good. Uh, but I I I do think that I've I've been singing this song since uh, 1985 when my book um, Nature's End came out. I don't. I think one of the reasons the visitors came to me there were two reasons. One is. I took such an interest in the environment, and two is that the really initiating incident was I became aware of the fact there was something very strange going on on Mars, and the next thing I knew, they were in my life. Uh, and uh, But that has been a very consistent pattern throughout my life of being the odd man out. You know, what is it, prophets in deserts or uh, some yeah. awful, yeah, right. Well, well, it's interesting you say that. I mean, Jeff and I, you know, certainly not on the level you're talking about um, uh, by far, but, I mean, we experience that too, where, you know, we've got this sort of influential, sh- influential show and people kind of talk about us or about the show, but it, it rarely do our names come up in it and and we don't get invited anywhere either. <laughs> so it's like... Yeah. It's I know like what the you, message gets out that, there, but not the people. It's strange. We're not. Yeah, I'm not. I was going to say I'm not alone. We're all in the same boat. Uh, we are. We have an enormous amount of influence, but no presence. Yeah, yeah, that's what it is. That's interesting. Lee, before I hog up all the time, do you want to jump in? Oh yeah, certainly, certainly. Uh, uh, Whitley, I had the. Uh, I've had the book for some time now, and I'm about on my fourth. Uh, read through of it, and I've made mention on in your uh, uh, chat room, the Unknown Country chat room, uh, several times. It's kind of like um, a record, uh, a really well produced record, where you listen to it, and every time you listen to it, there's some other little nuance, some other, other little angle, some other little dimension that you hadn't heard before. And uh, so far, every time, every passage I've read, it's uh, I've had uh, those kind of feelings with this. It's quite a remarkable book. Uh, there is some mention toward the end of the book uh, where you're talking about your, your meditations and and seeing basically alternative paths that the world has taken, uh, alternative uh, versions of history that you've been privy to. Uh, has any of that, did any of that stem directly from the uh, 
experience with the, with the master, or is that just an aside uh, from the uh, result of your meditations? I, I don't know. Maybe maybe it was. Maybe I was in an alternative reality when uh, when I uh, was with him. I don't know. Uh, but it certainly doesn't seem. It doesn't seem that way. It's it, it, it at all. I, I those things have that I've experienced those sort of time slips and movements. They happened to both me and Anne. One happened the other night, in fact. Uh-huh. I was um, she was in bed, and there's a bookcase at the foot of the bed, and I was walking past it, and she said. Why don't you throw away on one of the copies of that book, or not throw away? Why don't you give away one of the copies of that book, Empire? Uh, she she said you haven't even started it yet, and you've already got and you've got two copies. I said I, there's only one up there. Are you seeing double? And she and she said there's not. You took one of them down. You've got it in your hand. I had another book in my hand. And then she said, when she realized that there had been only one there, she said, well, they had slightly different backs. They were, in uh, other words, it was like the book was side by side in two different realities. And that sort of thing happens to us all the time. Yes. And mostly it's very small stuff like that, but it can get very large at times. Very large. Yeah, I've often wondered that about, uh, about the visitor experience, if we may not be kind of hopping around in that, that sort of thing. And you're almost getting to the, you know, if you talk about the physics of it, the the, the quantum nature of things, and the and the, you know, the the universe being a field of infinite probabilities, we have this uh, ability to jump into alternate probabilities and kind of slide around, slosh around inside neighboring probabilities. Yeah, I don't know that we're so fixed in. Was it in this reality? Was it uh, Roger Penrose? One of those wonderfully articulate physicists was talking or wrote perhaps an essay about the quantum universe in, in which he speculated that it might be that it's a kind of wave front. Mm-hmm. Reality is a kind of wave front and a quantum foam. And each little bubble in the foam contains a reality and in so far as they touch and intersect, they affect each other, but they are essentially discrete and never actually come into collision with one another as this foam moves forward on its mysterious journey through time. And I think that uh, some of us have ended up kind of, you know, right at the edge of the, at the edge of the bubble, as it were, uh, you and me and all of us, Annie, everyone who's doing this and having these experiences, we're really like the pigs in the barn- barnyard mm. who keep peering out between, <laughs> between the, in, uh, peering out of the fence, wondering what's going on out there. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Oh, uh, hmm. Yeah. That's actually a fairly scary thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, Whitley, I got a question for you. As far as um, as the book, uh, there's there's something in here I'd just like to to read. Um, it's very short. It says when you see UFOs, this is coming from the master of the key. When you see UFOs, you are seeing prison guards. They also act within your society to confuse you about your own past and to prevent progress in areas such as propulsion, which might enable you to spread into the heavens. This is all done to prevent you from escaping. Had you ever had that kind of of thought before 
about visitors oh, oh. about UFOs that they are oh, like I'm prison sure. guards? I'm sure I have had. Yeah, I'm sure I had. That certainly would have been the kind of thing that it was very forcefully. I was very forcefully reminded of it on that night, but it wasn't. A, it wasn't a jaw-droppingly new thought like the thing about the Holocaust at all. I was. Right. I felt like that was a familiar sort of a statement. Does that in any way change your outlook on on how you've been dealt with over the years by these these beings, these people? Like, does that change your outlook on? possibly their goals for you or what they wanted with you in the first place? Well, I can't tell whether if I hadn't been uh, toyed with by them, I would have figured it all out. And that's why they, that's why they uh, did what they did. Because after all, prior to this, I was even being thought of politically very seriously by people because of War Day and Nature's End and these books. They were wanting me to attempt several people wanting me to attempt a political tra- trajectory mm-hmm. and that was ended by the communion experience yeah. by writing and publishing communion absolutely brought it to an end it brought all of my relationships in politics to an end and i come from a political family i a uh, democratic family goes way back in texas for many hundred all the way to before the civil war And I definitely could have done something quite significant on the political front if I had been given the chance. Mm. This interrupted that. And it marginalized me. Right. And therefore, I didn't get to do what I wanted to do. And maybe if I had, the world would be a different place. I don't know. Because I certainly knew even then that the environmental dangers, I didn't have them as clearly articulated as I is in the key, but I certainly knew they were there. Right. And there was another passage in here. I've been trying to find it all through this interview and now I can't, I should have marked it last night, but there was a portion in here where he was telling you about your victors are effectively holding you uh, captive. I'm trying to figure out or get my head around who are the victors? Who did we go to war with? I mean, what if you could, can you flesh that out a little bit as far as what that meant? Well, I can't say what he thought it meant. I can say what it would mean to what it might mean to me. Okay. okay. Uh, first of all, if you look back, back across our history, there are two things that become immediately apparent. First, there is a lot of incredible engineering that emerges from the very earliest times. Uh, the best pyramids are all the first pyramids. The most extraordinary uh, things built by the Incas were not built by the Incas, but were there before they came along. And it's like that all around the world in different respects. Right. Now, that's one thing. The next thing is this. In 1985, in October, November of 1985, I was uh, discussing the Viking image of the face on Mars with Richard Hoagland and Greg Molnar and Vince DiPietro and a number of others. And one of us might have been, I don't know which one, it wasn't me and it wasn't Richard, said in this internet relay chat we had, the internet was in its infancy then and it was a chat system I think that belonged either to NASA or to one of the universities that one of the participants in the conversation was at said something extraordinary. He said, Mars was murdered. 
and he pointed out that the DNM pyramid in the had been entered at its base. There was a crater at its base that was an intrusion point, and you can see on the opposite side of the pyramid where it has something has caused it to collapse in on itself. Huh. Now I'm going to go forward a bit. And I'm just piecing things together here, just little crumbs that I have, to a letter I received sometime after I published communion, probably about six months, from a woman who had been walking in the woods with her little nine-year-old boy. And she wrote me because a dark blue figure, like some of the ones I described in communion, had come face to face with her in those woods. He had come out of a cave, the small, dark blue figure, and he spoke to her. He said that he was a rebel and that there had been a war between Earth and Mars before our history even began and that both sides had lost in the sense that we had stripped Mars of its livability on the surface, but they had captured the human soul. And they now forced us to live in a perpetual state of recurrence, never making any progress, dying and then being reborn into the physical and dying and being reborn into the physical, forever strapped to the wheel of life. And he said he disagrees with this and thinks that we should be let free. And he said his people call Earth dead forever. That's their name for it. Wow. Now you... Put all those things together with these stories of a terrible war in space that took place before the beginning of history that are uh, in the Vedas and so forth. And you ask yourself the question, do we really know who we are? And I've wondered if those enigmatic statements by the master of the key don't perhaps resonate in some way with this story. Hmm. That's an interesting point. I, I, I was going to um, mention in there, and I, I will mention it now since you uh, brought brought it up. Um, the master, the key, in a lot of ways, some of his his sayings, the things that uh, he he reveals there, maybe not to be taken so completely literally, but it's almost like a Don Juan Matus kind of character uh, for you, as uh, you know, as to what he was uh, to Castaneda, where. He would deliberately say things just to kind of knock him off a kilter every once in a while to to challenge his uh, whatever preconceived notions there may be and offer in there for somebody who is adept at mining their way through that to to actually find some some true gold in there. Uh, I see a lot of parallels in there. You know, the master of the key is no saint. He's very... He's a Canadian. Yeah, well... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's another story. A Canadian that doesn't pay taxes. There's a certain specific reason that's an interesting story, because it it turns out that some of the tribes, the Native American tribes, don't pay taxes in Canada. Mm -hmm. And uh, it could be that he was a member of such a tribe. Uh, The Mi'kmaqs, he looked very European. He could easily have been one. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting about that is that um, there's a story that the Templar leader from Scotland, John Sinclair, sailed to Newfoundland when uh, uh, the 
Templar order was destroyed by the Pope and by Philip II mm-hmm. and built a settlement there. And it could be that the Mi'kmaqs are a tribe that intermarried with people from this settlement. And if that's the case, maybe they have extraordinary Templar knowledge hidden within their traditions. And maybe that's who this man was. Maybe if I could find him among, I would find him among the Mi'kmaqs. Mm. Can I ask what, um, if you can remember, if you can describe what his demeanor was towards you or what his, if you could give me a little bit of like what you think his personality was past what he was telling you. Uh, because in more than a few places in the book, I note things that seem uh, strikingly familiar to me in demeanor of people that I've met that clearly either aren't human or aren't from here. There seems to be this, uh, I'll refer to you as child, and I'll also tell you you're arrogant, (laughs) And and things like this. I mean, there are that is well in my history with this stuff, and that kind of almost I don't want to say condescending attitude. I guess is that, yeah, is the best way to put it. Um, was that kind of his demeanor throughout the whole time of the conversation? If you can recall, I didn't feel any sense of condescension at all. Okay, I, I found him to be rather awesome. I mean, I thought that his gentle sort of he had greater knowledge and he was trying to convey that to me in a gentle way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say his demeanor was extremely joyous. He seemed about just about ready to burst out into laughter. Wow. Uh, okay. uh, the whole time. That's what put he, me in mind, in mind of the Don Juan Matus character. Huh. Yeah, he, it, it, did it? I, very I, similar. Well, see, it's, there's a certain, there's a certain consistency in all of this stuff. You mm-hmm. know, you end up with stories from a, 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 a being that can never quite be pinned down as whether it was real or not. And uh, right. there are things that he said that are so extraordinary and so telling that you think to yourself, gosh, in some way, this guy must have been quite real. But then when you get right down to it, there's absolutely no evidence at all, just in the same as in the case of Don Juan. Mm-hmm. Uh, Don Juan could easily be a fictional character. Certainly. And one actually intentionally created by Castaneda or uh, a master of the key could be a fictional character, too, created by me, maybe and, even intentionally. And in both cases, you can you can the, the, the joy from them really is palpable. If you, if you, when you read yeah. through, through the uh, between the lines there, it's like those who like to tell uh, tell kids scary stories, but not so scary to really fill them full of horror, just to titillate them. To draw them in, it's it's uh, it's it's entertaining. You can feel that joy. Yeah, you can. You can feel the joy. And the reason I incidentally started trying to get this published in a regular publisher now, I I never tried before because of the fact that I had. Well, the reason was I wasn't really sure where it was coming from, but too many of the more bizarre scientific uh, predictions he made have now come true. I, I just can't believe that this man wasn't in some sense real and didn't in some sense have a quite an extraordinary handle on on the truth uh it, it, well example uh the he says that there's more than one universe yeah and that was pretty darn surprising to hear in 1998 and same in 2002 when the book was published it was totally totally anathema 
Now it's not. Now yeah, there's much common knowledge now. <laughs> it's not quite common knowledge. It hasn't been absolutely proven, but it's beginning to look like it will be. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I've got to uh, I've got to ask a couple of our listener questions here since uh, they've got a lot for you. <laughs> uh, Lynn asked, uh, "Does Mister Streber believe that he met his muse, or does he believe it is possible that he met a being that he himself created?" What a good question. First of all, my muse is sitting right behind me right now. Uh, my muse is my wife, who is a very strange and magical being um, with a, a whole lot of hidden realities around her that you just, you just can't quite put your finger on. And I know that because I've known her for so well for so long. And what was the second part of it again? Uh, does he believe it's a, a possible that he met a being that he himself created? That's a huge question in my mind. Mm. It's an open question to me. I don't know the answer to it, and I do think it's possible. And uh, but I don't think it was a. It's something as conventional as something I sort of dreamed up and kind of convinced myself was real. If I created this, the 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 the, the this being the man in the room, or I created the visitors in some way, then they were for a period of time physically real and independent of me with an independence of awareness that did not include me. Now, how that could be the case, I don't know. But then again, the human mind is a very young thing in this universe, I think. And if that's the case, we don't really know what we are, do we? We certainly don't. Well, do you think all of this uh, smacks of what happens when you know, to put it in pseudoscience terms, uh, localized beings touch non-local reality. I mean, if if the goal here uh, of waking up and of realizing yourself as a human is this sort of oneness and this sort of um, perspective of the all as your perspective, um, then what does that look like to somebody who hasn't yet adopted that perspective? Uh, does it look like a collision with something that they may have invented but seems autonomous? I mean, I, I sort of feel like that's what we're seeing here. Did that make sense? <laughs> uh, did it make sense? Isn't that a great question? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Made sense up here. <laughs> I noticed a common theme. Uh, it, appeared, that, that, it appeared to make sense. i mean essentially if we're if we're if we're confronted by something that is um another phase of us another phase of humanity um or another creature from another planet another dimension that has tapped into this awareness that that is universal and therefore is still going to be what we become because it's universal then isn't that necessarily going to look like we're talking to ourselves, that we're talking to some aspect of us um, that we sort of recognize but isn't quite us? I mean, isn't, isn't it always going to feel that way? I wouldn't be at all surprised if we don't eventually discover that we created the universe. You know, there's a very interesting um, Hindu legend uh, about God who was looking down on the creation on earth and he's looking watching a pig and he said to his helpers he said you know look at that thing it's so filthy and dirty and look how happy it is it certainly seems to be having taking enormous pleasure from its life 
I wonder what it would be like to be that. And they, of course, said, oh, well, you know, it's of no importance. It's just a pig. But God didn't think that. God went into the pig and became the pig. And, you know, they waited for a while for God to come out. And God wouldn't come out of the pig. Because God was really enjoying being a pig a whole lot more than he had had been being the all-maintainer of the universe. So finally, to get him back to work, they had to kill the pig. And I think that dark conversation we had a little bit earlier about what is happening to this planet could be the killing of the pig. Huh. Great. <laughs> There's a lot of pig talk in this episode. <laughs> uh, I like to have fun. I'm I'm not here to be miserable. No, why, why I am often miserable, miserable, but that's not why I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I, I'm gonna I've tweet that the, later. I've got this one here from Boris, which I think is a really good question. He says, Whitley, in relation to the information that the master of the key imparted to you, what is the one question you think either the subjective individual or the human race as a whole should now be asking of the phenomena. Could you repeat that? I, uh... Says, in relation to the information the master of the key imparted to you, what is the one question you think the, either the subjective individual or the human race as a whole should now be asking of the phenomena? It's an, an unanswerable question. Uh, there isn't a single, it doesn't, it doesn't focus that, that clearly yet. Mm-hmm. There isn't one thing. Uh, I would say, though, that what we should be asking of the phenomenon is whether or not there is any way out for us. And if there is, uh, what is it? I mean, not for us in, in, in the physical world, because we're in a very serious situation with our planet deteriorating. Can they help us? Are they going to help us or not? Are they, are, they, are they an audience or are they participants in this drama? And if so, it's time. We better get some help. Yeah. We, need, we need it. Um, well, Whitley, let me ask you, because this sort of goes back to our conversation uh, on your show about Jiddu Krishnamurti and the message of uh, truth is a pathless land. I mean, ultimately, if the thing that we need to do is – mutate, evolve, upgrade, metamorphosize, whatever word you want to put on it, become enlightened, uh, then that's an individual journey, which is actually a non-journey, the sort of irony of it or the paradox of it. Uh, so it's an individual f- process of shutting up long enough to to wake up, <laughs> to listen properly. Um, so what could beings do to foster that in us if, if our own sort of religious establishments and gurus and all that sort of thing – haven't been able to do it for thousands of years, what could some alien or some, um, you know, man in a hotel room do to wake us up? Uh, I, I tend to think that the answer is nothing. All we can do is tell ourselves the same thing over and over again and hope that it happens. You know, that could be why it is that this is the the voice that this has gained, this whole phenomenon has gained over the years that it's been part of our lives remains so marginal. Uh, there was a statement, you know, Betty Andreessen was hypnotized many times by Ray Fowler. And in, in an early attempt to get at her, the, help her focus on memories of what happened to her and whether one, what one thinks or doesn't think about hypnosis is really irrelevant because 
she developed a narrative that was very consistent. And whether she could have developed that narrative without hypnosis or not is completely unknown. However, there were some points in that narrative that were extraordinary. One of them was when she uttered what they thought was a star language. It turned out that this was not a star language at all. It was Agam. It was an ancient uh, Celtic language. And the translation of it, of the words that she remembered being uttered by this being, this visitor, were children of the northern peoples who wander in eternal darkness. And the northern peoples have defined human society. There's no getting around it. That's what we've done. We have done that. And to tell us that we wander in eternal darkness at a time when our planet is definitely falling apart around our ears, and it's quite clear that the whole uh, economic infrastructure that we've created doesn't actually work, that it's not, it's, it's actually quite deadly, is frightening indeed, because this is eternal darkness. We don't know who we are. We don't know where we came from. We don't know where we're going. Our history is completely out of focus. We don't understand anything about it except that the narrative that we've created about it, the conventional narrative, is filled with holes. Our science is inadequate, and we see its inadequacy every time somebody looks up and takes a convincing photo of a UFO, which happens all the time. These objects are moving in ways that we don't understand, that suggest that we don't even understand actually what motion is in this universe or the laws that govern it. And yet, here we are in our billions on a planet that is clanking and sputtering and the engine's about to go off. Wow, what a place to be. Or what a place to be. Um, well... Here's one more from listener New Farmer. He said, uh, I'd like you to ask Whitley about his experience in a historical context. What he thinks of precursors who were also visited by higher beings and given information to write down, such as Joseph Smith, Aleister Crowley, and even Muhammad. I'm very weary, very weary, and very worried. I deliberated a long time about that, and I worried about what happens to this when I'm dead. Mm -hmm. uh, where does it go? Where does it go in 50 years or 100 years? Maybe it'll just go into the ash bin, or maybe there will be nowhere, nowhere for it to go. Maybe we're at the end anyway, so there's nowhere for it to go. I don't know. But I've read the Koran twice, uh, carefully. And it, first of all, it would stun me if it was written by fewer than two or three people at least, and more like probably five or six because of the different styles and voices that, that, that accumulate in it. Second, it is an absolute morass of contradictions. You can take anything you want from it. You can take peace or war from it. You can take cruelty or kindness, compassion or, or hatred. It's a mess, in other words, morally, a moral mess. Uh, the Bible is similarly, although a better written document, it's obviously also written over hundreds of years, it is uh, still a, a, a complete mass of contradictions, and so is the key. If you look carefully through the key, you'll find all kinds of contradictions and him being very duplicitous and deceptive about who he was. Uh, 
And I remember as I was sitting on the plane on the way home that afternoon, I was thinking back on this thing and already trying to put it out of my mind and thinking, oh, it's just a bunch of nonsense. I was thinking he was so duplicitous. Either I am was in the presence of something extraordinarily evil that has an awful long-term plan for this thing, or I was in the presence of a saint who was trying to preserve the question in my mind, and I have no way of telling which one it is. Huh. So I do worry about this greatly, yes. He spoke of, you know, getting back to the concept of the unity of all things, a you are he and he is you and we are all one. Um, you know, I've heard it suggested that... Um, God uh, created man so that he could really realize himself that we're basically just different facets of his being, uh, hence the unity uh, of everything. Uh, and then you just uh, had that ability to tap into that particular facet. And um, uh, much like in a, in a negative way, they got your attention several decades ago. This is uh, you know, certainly a lot more benign, but uh, no less puzzling. Um, as to getting your attention to to get you to speak, to get you to bring it up, um, bring it up, you know that sort of thing. Right. I was wondering if you could address that a little bit. Uh, just the the unity of all things that it, it, it's to, almost to a point where it doesn't really matter. It's almost kind of like an entertainment. <laughs> I think Something it matters past the time. <laughs> I think in the context of the key that it matters greatly. Yes. And the reason it does is what he says about the soul, that it is something eternal that is on a journey toward ecstasy. And everything that weighs it down is, is in a sense, disastrous. Because when you have something weighing down something that has that much potential, then it's catastrophic to deny consciousness this chance to expand. Anne had a, uh, uh, was very sick in 2004 and she was in the hospital and she had a near death experience that I've never forgotten. And she's spoken many times about on the radio. So some of your listeners will have heard about it. It was a very straightforward experience in many respects. And that's what made it so fabulous. And that is that she saw herself in a room full of people like a subway or a, train station or something and they were all sitting around clinging to suitcases and bags and this and that and the other thing and they were going nowhere that i think is the danger here and insofar as the master of the key may well have had the good in mind he was attempting to help us recover the path toward ecstasy that the northern peoples have lost in their quest for material wealth, uh, which leads only to the death of all of us. Mm, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, there's a chance for us. Of course there is. <laughs> I think there's a, certainly a chance for us. Why would he even have showed up if there wasn't exactly. a chance for us? I just exactly. don't know what the hell it is. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, when he talks about uh, if the human form goes, I mean, essentially what he makes the case that if the human form goes extinct, then we're going to be sort of ghosts haunting this world waiting for what? <laughs> I mean, are we waiting for something else to evolve that we can 
get into? I think it's very clear what we would be waiting for. We would be waiting for a way to open our hands and drop the drop those uh, bundles, those 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 burdens. Mm-hmm. We're going to have to drop the burden of the past if we're going to ascend. I mean, to me, this makes sense of well, it just makes it certainly gives life makes life pressing in the way that you were asking about Lee. You know, it's it's like well, why bother? Well, the why bother is because. Uh, if we don't, if we don't keep going, there's this consequence, which is we're stuck. Right. We're stuck without bodies to evolve. Right. Well, that's right. That he he uh, he uh, certainly alludes to that in the book. That that once you are out of the body, and if you haven't, it, it, the implication is that if you haven't let go of the baggage by then, then you can't. And uh, he's very plain spoken about it, and he doesn't really offer the kind of hope that you might expect, say, from uh, the church where you get to go to confession, go to communion, go to God. Uh, it ain't that easy. He suggests that everything in life has consequences and uh, that that I, I would, my guess would be that the energy of laughter would probably be, be what he most... If I asked him that, what is the energy of laughter? I think he might say it was freedom. Hmm. What, did his physicality change at all when he was in your presence, or was not he in the least, not in any way that himself. I noticed? He seemed perfectly normal. Okay. So we got one final listener uh, question here, which is from Jr., who asks. Do you feel that there was more information shared with you by the master of the key than what you shared publicly? Uh, if so, have you been able to recall? And I'm guessing this is since the first publication. No. No, I haven't. No more. I, I have thought at times that maybe there were things that I didn't remember, and I'm sure there were, but I haven't been able to recall them in any kind of clarity, with any kind of clarity. I wish I had. I wish I could have another 10 minutes with him, in fact. You know, one of the questions I want to ask him the most is, is he something to do with time? I never asked him if he was from the future. And right. Anne thinks he was, and she thinks he might have been me from the future. And um, I find it interesting that he said he was dead. <laughs> well, he did, but he. But then again, uh, look at the Gospels. Jesus calls us all dead. Yeah, 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 yeah. The one thing that we haven't touched on is um, sort of the the futuristic computer aspects of this. You know, sort of what's needed to keep us going, uh, which are conscious machines. And he goes on and describes exactly what's needed quite extensively. Does does that worry you at all, thinking about, you know, dealing with conscious machines? Or do you think, well, it's, it's necessary, we need to uh, make this next step? Two things worry me. The first one is this. Uh, he, he, he was so articulate in warning about letting conscious machines get away from us. I think that's I think that's an important warning. And I don't think we're that far from a breakthrough in machine intelligence that would lead to an, an, a machine that's more intelligent than we are. Whether or not it would be conscious or self-aware is another question that I don't know. But if it did become self-aware, then I think he's right. I think it would become the most dangerous thing in the world uh, because it, it, we wouldn't we would not be able to understand its motives or its plans, ipso facto, if it was smarter than we were. The other thing is this, and this is not really in the key, uh, but it bothers me a lot, and that is 
all of these things I read about implantable uh, uh, supplements and enhancements to the human mind. And it's wonderful if they could implant something that can enable a paralyzed man to move. But the implantation of things like memory and skills is not far from where we are now, assuming we survive for the next 50 years. Uh, we will be able to do such things. And do we then still have souls? Or do we, are we going to quietly turn ourselves into machines? Is the actual destiny of the evolution of the human species to become a machine? That I don't know, and I, I do think it's quite possible. Well, let me ask you one final question before we let you go here. If you could speak to him now, after having absorbed all of what he's said this many years, what, what would be, what would be the, the first question that you would ask him? Are you from the future? What would be the second? And, <laughs> and the implication, of course, is if he said yes, then it would mean we had one. Right. Well, Whitley, thank you very much for coming on and chatting about the key. Yes, thank you very much. Which is now available, of course, through Tarcher Penguin at all bookstores. Yeah, and on the Nook and on the in the Kindle. And you can learn more about it and watch a video of me trying to explain myself uh, on MOTKbook.com. Well, Whitley, thank you again for, for doing the show. It means a lot to us uh, to have been able to, to have you on and and, um, and especially to talk about this, which I've been wanting to talk to you uh, for quite a number of years about. So thank you again. Well, it was surprising, wasn't it? It was fun. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> okay, thank you. Take care. Thank you. Hi, this is Philippe Moore, and I am vacationing at Paratopia. So the Jeff. So the Jer. So the guys. So the Lee. So the Lee. There it is. <laughs> I W the Lee. <laughs> wow, huh? Once again, another Streber interview that makes me go, wow. Yeah. Wow. Yep. Yeah, it was wow, right? This was really fun. Uh, it was, I don't know, it was good to have Lee here and to have listener questions. Like, I really liked the dynamic of doing this. I just thought I'd throw that out there. Yeah. Yeah. It was great. great. Um, so what, what say you gents, <laughs> what are we to make of this? Uh, does it smack of, well, I guess for you, Jeff, does it smack of, um, the same sort of transition that you felt where, you know, where once Whitley was being, I don't want to say tormented, but I maybe is in, in some ways tormented or, or uh, told what to do, perhaps, by something that looked alien. Um, he's now transitioned into this conversational uh, thing with something that, that looks more human. Right. Um, on the surface, that sounds an awful lot like what's happened to you as of late. Yeah. Does it in depth? Um, yeah, in certain ways it does. I mean, there's certainly um, – I mean – I I have to say, I mean, despite what Willie said, I didn't get the feeling at all times during this book that there was great joy coming from this this man that he spoke with. I I got um, you know, my arrogant friend, uh, you know, uh referring to him as Chad, I wouldn't say it's condescending, but I, I think calling someone arrogant is certainly that. But but then again, or is it just descending? Uh, well, <laughs> thank you for that. 
but but I mean certainly there's that whole aspect of uh, uh, of being in, in the presence of someone very wise. I mean that certainly conveys through the book. That's certainly what uh, being in the presence of the the black sheeted guy is like. It's like you're with a wise, wise, wise person. Well, how does that make uh, you feel about him? I mean, did you feel joy from black sheeted guy? Um, at one point, yeah. Um, at one point, yeah. And, and here's the thing. I mean, the guy in the black sheet is not this terrifying uh, s- symbolic death, uh, you know, as the visage might paint him as. I mean, he laughs. He laughs. And when he laughs, you just want to explode. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, it, it, it's like you want to you, – you, you turn into that kid – uh, at those points when you actually get a laugh. And I have gotten that when I've been slightly sarcastic about a remark or uh, or even, you know, in times of just self-deprecation of saying, I don't get that. You're going to have to really lead me through this. I mean, I don't understand what you're saying. Um, I mean, the personality sounds and feels somewhat alike. But what I find the the best part about this is that you sit down and you have a conversation with somebody for that long. That's that important. That's that life changing that you write a book and yet you really can't remember everything. And that is exactly like being in the presence of this guy in this black outfit. Oh. You, you remember parts where there's extreme emotion attached to it. Um, in the sense of uh, everything that he's talked to me about, which was personally directed at me. It wasn't anything prophetic. It wasn't anything about the nature of reality or the universe. It's your behavior. Right. What is your behavior about? Explain yourself. And you cannot lie. Mm-hmm. You can't lie because he already knows. So it'll, it, you know, it's like the mom who finds out a, a secret that you've kept, or like you've got an E in English. She already knows because the teacher's called her. Right, but right. you're going to tell me why, and I'm going to force you to tell me why until you give me the truth. And so that kind of, um, you know, to, to, to essentially be uh, naked, you know, you've got clothes on, but you're naked in mm-hmm. front of this being mm-hmm. because he knows. And now you're going to actually tell me the truth. And from that, you will actually gain a different perspective on how you deal with people, why you're angry. You know, all of the different things that make you you goes through this, this radical change all at the same time. And I think what this did for him, for Whitley, with this experience with this man, is almost that same kind of thing. It, changed, it gave him information about not only himself but the world. It's a well, greater example of he that. He didn't to me. indicate any fear from this encounter. No, like, except for maybe the first initial thing. Hey, there's some weird dude in my who's hotel in my room, room. Right. right? But then uh, he seemed to be compelling enough where he kind of he kind of hooked him right away, as he said. Yeah, and um, that is dramatically different from his horrific encounters from the '80s. Right. Right. Uh, you know, and, you know, I've even I mean, I don't know if you guys have talked too much in depth about uh, the the changing nature of the reports of uh, contact over the uh, over the years. Mm. There's certainly uh, there's certainly been a progression and a change. And, you know, not that their behavior has per se changed so much as perhaps our perception, mm. our familiarity, our Coming to beginning to come to grips of an understanding 
of uh, that there there may be some ch- some kind of I don't know to say paternal guidance or maternal some parental guidance mm-hmm. there uh, as you, you you lead a child through uh, knowing that they got an E in, in English <laughs> and so forth you know, that, right. that kind of yeah. deal but you know and you do it in a loving and joy-filled way. And i got to say, in contrast to you, Jeff, I definitely picked up on joy really? from, from the master of the key. In there. Yeah. It was almost like he was toying with them, not in a, in, in a kitty cat sort of sense, mm-hmm. you know, like a cat plays with a mouse. But yeah. Three. Well, you know. Um, but um, that he was leading him in a loving way and had just had that little twinkle in his eye as he was doing it. Yeah, yeah. Even intentionally saying ridiculous, outlandish things, more or less just to get his attention. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess you've got to read through it more like that than you do, Yeah. like, I've got, you know, like, this is gospel, you know, this oh, no, is, right, you, right. you know, because there is always that, That's there's always saying. that, op- there's this open-endedness to this, all of this, this stuff. This book you know? is Pink Floyd, The Wall in written form. <laughs> right, right. I'm telling you, every time I listen to that record, I hear a different yeah. thing. Yeah, there's so a many nuances. nuance, right. Thrown right. out. And know. there are so many shades in this book. It's just, it just uh, it's a small book, but it's got a, a huge message. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I would say, you know, it's – I'm definitely reading it again. I told Jeremy last night I read through it, you know, just to prep for this. Yeah. But ultimately, this is the kind of book you want to take with you on a weekend to the beach yep. and literally just just dive into it and reread every paragraph twice yep. just to get – Well, my know, first time through was a page turner. I didn't stop until uh, I was done. Yeah. I yeah. mean it does keep you going. Just yeah. the, the, the very – the verbalize, you know, the, the, yep. the layout of the verbalization between the two of them keeps you going. Um, and by the way, the new version of the book with the new passages in it, the new forwards and all of that is, is, uh, is some insightful stuff too. Maybe I mean, we can trade copies for a little y- while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, Jeff, let me ask you this. Oh, hi, Jer. <laughs> yeah, hey, hey, guys. So glad I indoctrinated the Lee. Uh, nice. Here's an inevitable question that will come up. Why do you think it is that, uh, Whitley's allowed to talk about all of this and you're not allowed to talk about your stuff <laughs> i don't know i don't know i mean your guess is as good as mine there i don't know you're gonna have to ask him yeah, yeah i wonder if that has to do with the dynamics of what your <laughs> how do you like this what your function is in terms of all this stuff as compared mm-hmm. to the dynamics of whitley's function in all of this stuff and that it means something different for Whitley to publish a book and mm-hmm. get clobbered and then have a good portion of it come true or or become conventional wisdom that it might be true, mm-hmm. as seems to be the case in his life. Um, mm-hmm. And maybe that's just his road and your road isn't that for whatever reason. Yeah. I, I honestly do, I don't have an answer for that. Because um, you don't like getting clobbered. <laughs> well, that's true. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's um, – uh, it's a good question. I don't know. I mean, fr- frankly, as I said before, the majority of the first conversation that I had was not about was not about anything that anyone would really be that interested in. Mm-hmm. I mean, really, from the standpoint of a mass com situation, mm-hmm. I don't think a lot of people would be all that enthralled. Um, like what's going to be I, the best day to cut your grass? Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, like, like how interested you know are you going to be in in my own personal baggage? 
and the ex, you know, the ex- exposition of that, mm-hmm. you know, to myself, what things that you don't admit to yourself, you know, but, but I think, uh, you know, I think I've said, uh, some things that have come up that, you know, for in, in this, Jeremy, we had the discussion about wearing masks, the mask you wear for people outside of mm-hmm. your family to work to, to your family, to you mm-hmm. and you wear it even to yourself. So mm-hmm. it's a backwards mask on yourself. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that was a pretty big hit. I mean, that was a pretty big realization of what you do. I always kind of had that inkling that you put on a mask to your audience on a podcast. You put That's on a right. mask. And, you know, and in so many ways, um, I, I guess the real thing that I think maybe somebody might get out of this, and I'll just say it, and if I get whipped, then so be it. But I think that the big thing about it is that uh, not only are we all wearing masks, but that um, – the reason that I feel anger a lot of times, mm-hmm. uh, not only at this subject, but in just everyday life, is that uh, I tend to drop mine more than most people. I tend to be very open with people. Y- you can take it or leave it, and that's the way it is. But at the same time, like the, the way that it was said to me is, well, you know, well, you expect everyone to be able to see that you're doing that. And so, therefore, you're expecting them to react in a very, in a very open way to you. And when they don't, then, of course, you're offended and you become angry. And so you've become angry at the world for this. And, yeah, I do feel that way sometimes. Like I just put it out there because I think it's important or because I want to be honest with someone about how I feel about them or something like that. And when that kind of is not, is not met with a removal of the other mask from someone else, that's like offensive to me. Mm-hmm. But I can't feel that because not everybody feels so inclined to drop that that facade all the time. And that's just the nature of that's human nature. I mean, to, to want to protect itself because um, you're not having parody there or not. Yeah. Because yeah. you don't always just make a joke out of everything or, or you right. don't just say, I know this is going to sound crazy, but see, that's a mask. You know, mm-hmm. you say sure. this happened, this is a to B and that's it. Mm-hmm. And I have no, you know, I, this is, this is it. This is me. Do you think <laughs> you know? that the, uh, do you think that maybe the reason that you're not allowed to talk about it, a lot of it publicly is less um, for us and more for you, uh, in the sense that, um, uh, in the sense that what, in the sense that I just lost what the fuck I was saying. <laughs> <laughs> Think about it for a second. You know, we we uh, our lives. You know, it's often said our lives are like um, like an onion. You know, we have the different layers of our interaction with our fellow human beings and others um oh, i got it you know th- especially those of us who who live a any kind of somewhat public life mm-hmm. you know the outermost layer is your paparazzi view mm-hmm. and then the next layer in is the the, the public view that you want to project mm-hmm. uh as, you know as a public person uh next is a you know your personal layer where, you know, it's, it's less about the image uh, of the, uh, whatever icon of whatever size that you are, uh, in the grand scheme of thing, you know, you have your personal relationships inside of that is your private. And in some very inside of that is your secret Mm -hmm. stuff that nobody else knows. And each comes with its own varying layer of trust and varying layer of willingness to drop that mask. You know, you can liken those, 
so a multi-layered mask. Mm-hmm. If, if that. Well, and it's based upon what your experience has been when and, you have. And or, you also, you as know. you as you go through those concentric rings, you also have varying levels of control as to what degree you want to allow out. Not in every, not a hundred percent, but largely, that's the case. Yeah, the, the, yeah. You know, you you get to to the stuff that's at the very core of you. That no matter what. You're not going to release to anybody. <laughs> right. No way, not know how. Right. But you're in the presence of one of these things that, as you said yourself, you're standing there naked. You got no defense. There, yeah. yeah, there isn't any mask that you can put on. Yeah. For exactly. that, at that point, there's nothing that you can do. I mean, yeah. I think that, you know, and, and here's, I'll drop this one and let's see what happens. Um, one of the things that was put in, in, in such a way, I won't verbalize it the same way. So maybe that'll make a difference. But the, inference to me was that everyone longs for childhood we all long to be young again right we all but you know and and the way i was i said well sure who who wants to be old who wants to get old and have back problems and all that and 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 the answer is no that's not that's not it you yearn for that time because that's when you were the most you that is really who you are as this child you are you know that flower blowing in the wind you are more free than anything that you can be now. Well, we can yearn for childhood. Yeah. We don't have to yearn for youth. Though. Right, exactly. Well, I'll, I remembered what my thing was, and then I want to talk about that. What's your thing? My my question way back when was going to be, uh, do you think that um, the not being able to speak publicly about much of this material with him mm-hmm. is more for you in that? <laughs> uh <laughs> 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 what? I didn't forget it. Oh, okay, go. It's right on the tip of my tongue, I swear. <laughs> In that, uh, what he had said was that if you talk about it publicly, you risk focusing on the mechanics of it and uh, and sort of fussing over that and not getting what the big message is of, of any particular communication, right? Mm-hmm. And so would that be more like, for like you than for us? Gates it, you mean? What? Like talking about it negates it. You mean no that that like we wouldn't know if if he says okay a plus b equals c, Jeff and I will pick up on the plus sign and be like what does that plus sign mean? And it's like no dummies a plus b equals c. Just get to c. That's the impo- uh-huh. c is the important thing. Don't worry about the equation. Oh uh, right right right. Um, but that would be more important for you um, since all this stuff is about you than it would be for us uh, and the you know as an audience. It, it, it's less about us getting confused and more about a problem with you getting confused since all of this is directed toward you. Do you think that's maybe why he doesn't want you talking about it publicly? That's a good point, I guess. I don't. So I it was mean, worth it. It was worth the wait, this, this point. It certainly was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, ultimately, yeah. I mean, you know, it's a good question. I, I, don't, I don't know, but, you know, that would make a certain amount of sense um, that you would become fixed on it just by overanalyzation of of what is said. Um, I, I don't know. Uh, there's a lot of I don't know with this whole, you know, with this guy. And, and ultimately um, that happened anyway because, I mean, ultimately he said, oh, this material is, you know, what I wrapped you in as a kid and you jumped back. Right. Uh, and that sort of ended your your communications with him for quite a while. Right. So ultimately, I mean, you you did just sort of jump back at probably the wrong arguably how, how about arguably arguably the wrong thing you mm-hmm. went oh i'm scared of that now i don't know what to make of any of this anymore goodbye 
well, now that I don't, I don't know what to make of you anymore. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. To a certain point, yeah. So, do you think uh, that that would be an example of you paid attention to the wrong detail, and so now you've cut off communication, or at least for that time? That almost sounds mm. like a punishment, though. Mm. You know, uh, I mean, couch like that. Well, it's not a punishment because Jeff's the one who cut off the communication. No. Well, I kind of, I kind of became ridiculously fearful. And I became um, – so you got to understand that <laughs> at a certain point, I was like – I felt really good. I mean I felt really good about this. And I thought like finally – special because you're having this – No, like, <laughs> like I finally getting somewhere. Like somebody uh, – uh, like I can communicate with this. Like this is not horrifying you know, B-movie sci-fi anymore. Right. Now it's like – I know somebody. Like, I know somebody who and knows. The, and this dude gets you. Right? And I get it. Right. And now it's like, okay, it, this right. is great. All right, now let's, 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 you know. And I felt, it, this sounds dumb, and but this is it. I felt like I actually had a friend who was willing to, was willing to work and make me understand or try to help me understand. And, and I felt amazing. Yeah. I felt amazing after, you know, a, 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 an experience with him. I felt uh, calm. I felt like I don't know from calm most mm-hmm. of my life, but I felt really calm, really at peace with all of this. Like this is all supposed to be like this. Like mm-hmm. it may have been hard, but now I've reached the plateau, and now I've got a friend who's actually going to help, and I can learn something. And and then by learn by me, then everybody else, I could like I could say, hey, look, this is what I got. Make of it what you will, but here it is, right. and. And somebody to hook you up, basically. Yeah, I mean, I basically had somebody who knew something, mm-hmm. and that was like the hugest thing to me. Mm-hmm. And the fact that it was very calm, and it was a it was a conversation. Nobody touched me. Nobody right. was poking. I mean, you know, there were weird shit, but there was nobody was nobody was coming at me with a knife. Or, right. You know that not that kind of relation. And um, did the rug get pulled out from under? And you? yeah, at a certain point, it was like, you know. You you know what this and then the explanation just set me aback so hard that I identified it with something inherently fearful that has been ingrained in my in my psyche for so many years as mm-hmm. this is true terror this is you know this is worse ultimately than the the red disc up in up in the country mm-hmm. it's worse than that. Mm-hmm. And so now immediately I make that – now the connection is there. I wasn't making the connection to the at-youth experiences in connection with this man. Now all of a sudden the connection's made. Clicked, now yeah. I'm scared as hell of you. And in, to that end, the response from him was not to jump up and go, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. The response was disappointment. Mm-hmm. And then I was disappointed in me for reacting that way. And so the answer was, until you can come to terms with this, I'm backing off. And that's it. And have I come to terms with it? I don't know. I, I, I try. That's the only I try, in here. I try. Yeah. <laughs> Thankfully. I, I try to understand that, and I'm trying to make those childhood things not be an anchor of the fear mm-hmm. of this stuff. Like I've got to – like what you told me years ago, to think that you have any toehold on reality is a joke. Forget about it. And so I keep – I remember that and I think about all the people I've met along the, along the way and how Jeremy even has said, 
with all that goes on and all that you see, uh, how can you still have that same level of fear about it? And it is the relinquishment of control. Mm-hmm. It is that. It is that kind of thing that holds me back continuously. And so, the master of the key has a one-word answer to that. How do you get over that? Jump. <laughs> Surrender. Right, exactly. That's, that's exactly that's it. The yeah. Word. Surrender. Yeah. yeah. So that's kind of been where I've left it, you know. Uh-huh. And and uh Well that's even so, that's even the message of the magic mushroom, isn't it? Right. Yeah. And Surrender. really kind of the Bible too. Yeah. Yeah. It's okay. also the message that I got from perhaps your shroud guy. I never saw the guy. Mm-hmm. But when I slept over your house and I had that I I can be strength. Yeah. You know, this sort of experience of seeing uh, that there is this fear barrier that we touch, and that you just have to <laughs> you have to suck it up, <laughs> you have yeah. to surrender to it. Yeah, uh, and that is strength. I mean, it's it's the again, it's another paradox. It's like, what is strength? Strength is surrender, right? Yeah, and you think strength is control, but control is really running from the fact of well <laughs> that we're not, you know. Yeah. That we're not the little kids that we want to be. So getting back to that point, <laughs> uh, look at how I just brought that full circle. That was, yeah, that very, was wonderful. Very yeah. smooth. Nice. I, thank you. I'm getting good at this. <laughs> uh, someone we had on the show who doesn't want uh, his stuff public, I guess, in this way, but I'll share it without naming him, had an incident where he saw a dead relative who was not only uh, a child – in child form, but was he? He wasn't sure what gender. <laughs> huh? Like it was originally a she, and now is it a, a little boy that he was seeing? He wasn't certain, but definitely a child, and definitely his relative. And they had a little discussion. Um, Sounds like what dreams may come. Yeah, you know. Yeah, seriously. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Or, that kind of yeah. I don't know, but it was like this was the form that she most identified with. I guess you know, mm. being this little kid. So, I don't know. Maybe there's maybe there's some literal truth to that. Yeah. 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 I, I mean, know. there is some literal truth to that because in our I think in our, you know, if we're all honest with ourselves in our in our quiet time when we do lose control and when we do break down um and perhaps anyone who's had a mid- midlife crisis uh might maybe this applies to them as well. Um I was fortunate. I had mine at 12. <laughs> well, when you're when you're praying to God or to the universe or to whatever, when you're begging something outside of yourself for uh, forgiveness or for release or for help, the more genuine you become and the more in tune with your emotions at that moment, I think there is a regression, if you want to call it that. There is a childlike thing, and and you know maybe it's just as simple as the act of crying, <laughs> the act yeah. of needing nurturing um, mm-hmm. is a childlike need. Um, but isn't this what we all need? I mean, especially here in New York where you've got, you know, uh, millions of people all jam packed together and barely talking to each other. Right. I mean, you've, it's such an odd situation to have so many people who just want to be known or recognized. Um, and, and I think all of that is just sort of a shallow version of this. It's sort of that. Well, you know, all of these masters, you know, Buddha or, you know, what we perceive as Buddha and, and master the key, Don Juan, all these, these guys all had that childlike quality. It's like almost, it's, you know, we, we call it joy. It might be just a little childlike mirth about them, that kind of demeanor about them. And, you know, it's the twinkle in the eye and it's, 
it, it is that thing. It is that childhood innocence. And that is all over the Bible. You know, I mean. Be as little children. Be as little children. Yeah, yeah exactly. Hmm. Curious. As the great sage Michael Jackson once said, oh. Shamon. <laughs> Here it comes. <laughs> and there it is. Paratopia. There, there it is. It. I believe it was Buddha Jackson who sang, Mama say, Mama sa, Mama kusa. No true well, words have ever been spoken. I'll tell you. Um, I'll tell you the truth. This this week um, and part of last week has really kind of sunk in because one of my longtime friends of my life uh, since we were kids, Steve, passed away um, last week. He had uh, stage four cancer when they discovered that he had cancer. Um, he passed away last week and. Um, you know, when I first found out he was sick, you know, I wrote him and I said, "I can't believe it, dude. I, I just, I, I have the, I can't, I can't believe it." And uh, are you okay? And you know, how are you dealing with it? And I was, I was godsmacked at how calm he was and like how, and he had not long found this out. I mean, you would expect someone to still be in a certain level of anger or, well, or upset that, about there's it. There's definitely set. You know, there's a pretty well-established, you know, litany of emotions that you go through. Yeah. However, what is not established is the amount of time you need to dwell in any kind of particular In what area? Room, right, right. You know? exactly. And he said, you know, I'm really, I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. And he says, in fact, when the doctor told me, uh, before I even knew, I knew. Mm-hmm. And he said, what's really strange is that um, the doctor had a harder time telling me about it than I did in, in response. Right, right. Yeah. And I said, I can't conceive of that. I mean, we had this really frank discussion. I said, I can't conceive of that. And he says, well, it's just one of those things that I know this isn't it. I know, like I know, that this is not it. And in many ways, I'm actually looking forward to it because, I mean, let's face it, he was absolutely miserable. His yeah, form sure. of cancer didn't allow him to eat or swallow. Right. So... um you know, I found that really interesting. But here's something that's kind of a tangent. I mean, I took a great deal of strength out of that. I'm like, you know what? If this guy can face this, then what the hell is wrong with me? You must feel ashamed that you have any fear at all or any concern at all when you meet somebody and talk to somebody that you've known all your life mm-hmm. who's facing down something like that. I mean, it's you know, he is amazing. It was amazing to see that guy in that state talking like that Mm -hmm. and far more concerned about everybody around him than him. Right. (laughs) You know, I thought that was amazing. But what was, uh, what was really interesting, uh, out of that whole rather depressing and terrible thing was when I went to his, uh, his viewing time, um, on Saturday, um, or Sunday, I can't remember which, but I was talking to his brother Mm -hmm. and, um, he says, you know what, you know what's weird? And I said, what? And he says, um, uh, I was the prime candidate for this affliction that he died from. Hmm. And he said, for years I had this problem that I was told was a high probability would come into this sort of problem. Uh, and he said, I had it for years. And I went in uh, to be checked for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was damage to his, uh, to his trachea. Basically, Steve had uh, uh, esophageal cancer that um, – gave him a, a huge tumor in his chest. And apparently his brother had this same type of thing. And he says, do you know when I went in uh, to be checked the last time, it was gone. Really? And he says, and not, not days after that was when Steve was diagnosed with this. 
So he felt odd about that. Like, what happened? Like, is that not weird? And I said, yeah, it is weird. It's, mm. You know, there's a lot of very weird things about about when somebody passes, there's always some kind of weirdness that happens. And I, when I heard that he had died, I really, like, retraced my steps. Like, okay, at such at 9.50 a.m., what was I doing? I wasn't doing anything. There was nothing out of the ordinary. It was a completely ordinary day. Um, but I so wanted to ask, you know, was there anything that, that struck you? I mean, you, hate, you, you don't want to ask that at a time of mourning, but right. certainly in years to come, you know, I've got to ask, you know, like, someone that prepared – and so worried about their uh, about their about their their surrounding friends and family, you know what happened? I mean, what happened? Um, but uh, yeah, I look at that guy and I think, what a what a pillar to me of like what it means uh, to be strong, you know, to be strength. What you a know? great testimony! You know, that really it, is. It's amazing. Testimony. I mean, yeah. and so I've got a, you know, I thought about him a lot this week and. Uh, and 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 in 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 accordance with my own fears about death and dying, which we all have, but I seem to like focus upon sometimes. You know, I've kind of got to you know take the cue there, you know, and just um, uh, and just kind of like take take that kind of strength and kind of apply it to my own thoughts and my own fears about this stuff. But so you've it's already, so paling in comparison. You've already dropped a lot of your fears. I have, yeah. You've already yeah. Dropped, oh, yeah. You've shed them. Yeah, I have in so a I lot of ways. you may be yeah. further along the path than you... Well, I don't know. It depends on how, it depends on how prominent in the foreground it becomes. Right. Well, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I don't run at balls of light anymore. I don't run. Like, I don't take off upstairs anymore. I'll actually go toward look. Toward or away. Yeah, I'll, well, I'll go toward now. I'll oh, actually right. go look and see, okay, what was that? I'm, I'm far more analytical than I was. Like, I saw it, and I've got to run. Mm-hmm. Now it's more along the lines of, okay, I saw it. Now I'm going to sit here, I'm going to think about it for a minute and calm myself because the, the sudden impact is there. But once that's over, okay, now let me walk over there. Right. What, what do I smell? You know? Mm-hmm. Uh, let me look outside. Uh, let me you know, get me to look outside of a window, which you actually said in an interview <laughs> with a local Fox affiliate. Mm-hmm. Approaching forty, you said mm-hmm. I shouldn't be afraid to look out the window. <laughs> and, I, and I'm and, not and, anymore, right? Yeah. And I'm not yeah. apparently either. I yeah. threw up in the big the big glass doors and I looked. That's not something I think I would have done a year ago, mm-hmm. to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I'm, but it's really small steps, and it's really gradual. And still, to this day, there are things in this house that I, I that are fearful to me. Um, Want to see something really scary? Mm-mm. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, let's get back to the key here for one hot second. Yeah, Great yeah. Idea. Let's do that. Yeah. Do you? Uh, what do you make of the Mars stuff? Well, what do you make of the Mars stuff, Lee? I think there's a lot of credence to it. Really? Yeah. Hmm. I, I don't know that I buy into a lot of the commercial things that are going on, but a lot of the theories seem very plausible. Hmm. The biggest detriment or biggest detractor from that would be the fact that there is not quite enough mass to really truly support an atmosphere, hmm. a viable atmosphere, and there's an absence of a magnetic field in Mars, so there wouldn't be any ionosphere to, to provide any kind of... Uh, uh, protection, mm. unless then, something blew all that away. Unless, unless someone killed it. Unless something. Right. right. Exactly. That's exactly right. Mm. I've been watching some of these, um, you know, the the YouTube blurbs about uh, you know them seeing anomalous 
things, not not from space, but up close on Mars, uh, that uh, do look curiously structured, that like they could be a piece of something that was once something mm-hmm. uh, that it was conceivably inhabited before. Certainly, why not? Um, well, the he mentioned the DSM pyramid. I mean, I, you know, I, I know the face has been sort of. I don't know. I don't want to say debunked, but whatever. I mean, we've seen what it's been it is. Closer right? image, yeah. I mean, it's been better image since then. And same and thing with the pyramid. I don't know. Uh, pretty much, my interest lied in the face for a while. I mean, literally, many many years ago, I was somewhat interested in that. I mean, it was a curious thing. Um, oh no, no, the, but, the clear photograph. Was but the clear, right? The clear photograph was photoshopped. Um, no, I mean, I. I don't. As far as all the the pyramidal stuff, I mean, let's face it, mountains can be pyramidal. I don't know how much I take that. I'm not sure that I can swallow that part. It's but, really hard to make that kind of assessment from umpy ump miles yeah, up in space. Yeah, if you've got something that's crawling around on the surface, you have at least an opportunity to get a little little bit more detail. Yeah, on it, provided your comlink stays up. Right. I would believe. Um, a guy no one has seen or heard of except for Whitley Strieber about Mars before I would believe Richard Hoagland. But that's well, just yeah. me. <laughs> well, yeah, there, there's that. Um, I mean, what did you think, Jeremy, about what he said about uh, crop circles? I mean, there's, there's something that we've had some, uh, some serious dialogues with one of the, the best guys in the field on. Colin has said flatly, you know, 99.9% of these are man-made. Right, yet, but but, the, but even the man-made people are saying, you know, something's influencing me, and there are these lights in the field. Exactly, exactly. So, I mean, if if it is a communication, what what do you say was communication from the dead or from aliens? I don't remember. The dead. Okay, I the think. dead. So the way it was put, in in other words, like becoming a one-dimensional. Now, Whitley, Whitley has spoken of of really them being almost one and the same, or at least coming from the same realm after a way. Not they're not saying that this is what. He says is what it is. It's just right. one plausible thing that we might be. You know, this may be a bardo of sorts that we're all we're all living in. He, he's mm. mentioned that numerous times. Could be, but if it's different things, I mean, you know, what, what's one way some ethereal form might talk to you just by influencing you, right? Mm. Maybe possess possession or influencing channeling. I don't know any any of that sort of. Stuff, uh, I, I think. Of your musician's repossession, too. Right. So. Yeah. Well, I'm just I saying, mean, uh, you know, there there are lots of pseudo answers that you can throw on to right. what that's communication right. is from the dead through a crop circle. It doesn't necessarily and, mean that they're, out, you know, dead people are out there with their own boards stomping around. Right. right. <laughs> yeah. Maybe it's just graffiti on the prison walls. I mean. Hmm. What a picture. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, that's, you know, and that all points to the same stuff we've been saying all along, really, that, uh, you know, this this may not have one solution, and we really have to fight the uh, urge to anthropomorphize it, you know, to put these human attributes to it, because it's almost certainly, you know, I I couldn't swear to it, but it's almost certainly not a human phenomenon, nothing that we can couch in such a thing, and it may not be any one cause either it might be could be multiple causes at work here that are different that are, that are different yeah. we just don't know mm. well on the we just don't know maybe we should call it wraps yeah sorry to bust up the party guys 
Fred Killer. We always love to leave on the honest note of we just don't we know. We don't know. Yeah. 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 Well, I think Whitley pretty much summed that up. We don't know what we are, where we are, what's going on. I think the most profound thing he ever said was that face in the dark. You uh, see abs- staring back at you might be, could quite conceivably be the face of our own evolution. Right. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, and I think he said it in different words very well tonight, which is that this guy knew what he was and he yeah. he's a human and he knows it and we don't. Yeah. We don't know what that means. We don't know what we are. I mean, I think mm. that's it. I mean, that's all I've been saying for years. He just summed it up in a sentence. <laughs> <laughs> and there you are. He has a wonderful economy of words. Right. Yes. Yes. Well, gents, Lee, thank you very much for uh, for coming out. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate the invite. I've been uh, uh, one. I've, I've been corresponding with uh, Mr. Strever for for actually a couple of decades now, mm-hmm. uh, here and there, and uh, uh, quite active on his uh, unknown country uh, site as far as you know, just being involved in the uh, in their their chat, uh, their Wednesday night chat uh, rooms, which uh, Whitley. Very accessible man, quite frequently mm-hmm. shows up, and Anne shows up there, and we just have a delightful time. We've met some, actually, some some really uh, pretty cool people in there. And that's all nice. at unknowncountry.com? Yes, that's right. And, and, I, and uh, you know, So go I, there and meet Whitley, meet Anne, and meet Lee. Yeah. 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 Uh, <laughs> no, I uh, I appreciate you having me on board here for this uh, for this episode, especially, guys. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. And once again, of course, thanks to Whitley Strieber. His book is The Key. It is out now. It just came out uh, yesterday. Oh, yeah. fantastic. Or it'll be Many yesterday thanks. by the time this goes up. comes out on the yeah. 12th. Yeah. So rush to your local bookstore and pick it up. Yeah. And I don't read many books, but I would say go get it. Ask you know, for it I, by name. Ask for it by name. That's right. Jeff, as always, fine speaking with you. And with you, sir. <laughs> Peritopia, <laughs> sweet dreams. Good night.